does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. If you're just joining us, by the way, wide receiver Mike Strawn, wide receiver Amari Rogers, and running back Jake Funk, which was actually my nickname in college. Those three are the three that we know of at this point uh, that, at least as of now, obviously things can always change between fluctuations, practice squad, etc., but they are not part of the Indianapolis Colts this season. They are they have been released and or waived depending on their level of tenure. So we know that much for now. We are awaiting, of course, over the next three hours before the deadline. And to talk about that and just kind of the mindset of all that goes into that, James, you decided to bring on one of your colleagues from The Athletic. Yes, we have Randy Mueller, former NFL Executive of the Year on the line. Randy, how you doing? Doing great, guys. Good to be with you. Randy, I want to begin with this. You know, in your time as a GM, obviously, and just in you know New Orleans, Miami, and working for Seattle, you know, different franchises, we talk so much about the player standpoint of what today is like and determining those things. When you are formulating the roster, what are the 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 key? I guess when you're looking at it and you're going down to like players fifty one, two, and three. How difficult are those decisions? Is it usually pretty clear-cut, or do you literally lose sleep for nights on end over the positions that a lot of people probably don't even think about? Well, it it is hard. It is a longer process than you think. I don't know that anybody's losing sleep over it, but you have a body of work that started last spring when you acquired these players. So it is, for the most part, on paper, it's one thing, but it's, it's, it's a fluid puzzle that changes pieces every day based on injuries, depth at other positions. There are just a lot of factors that you have to consider. Then you've got to try to project what's going to be available from other teams' releases, and is that better than your options? So it's convoluted. There's no doubt. I think nobody gets it exactly like they they think they have it. They don't think nobody gets it exactly right. I should say so. It's a process. It's it's emotional for the players, but it's emotional for the decision makers too. Especially the guys who are delivering the message to these guys who have worked their whole you know spring and summer to try to make your team. And how much does? I mean, this is going to sound really elementary, Randy. So I'm almost embarrassed to ask it. But if all things are given equal between two candidates, so to speak. How much does contract come into play, or you know, just in terms of the amount left on the contract, the amount it's going to cost against your cap, et cetera? Well, I think in some cases it matters a lot. If you're if you're comparing a, a an NFL rookie to a you know six or seven year veteran, the, the the money is vastly different. But if you're talking about two or three years of service, maybe not quite as much. And you've built in your cap some some uh, bumper room, right? You've built in the money that in case a veteran here is is more equipped to make your team and help you the first three weeks that you can do that um so you try to plan again it's like the old nfl films when abe gibbon the old coach of the bears was on the sidelines and he yells out watch the draw watch the screen oh watch everything you know so that's kind of what it comes down to you got to watch everything and consider everything so randy how much do you sleep during a week like this because (laughs) I feel like, is it just, you know, burn the midnight oil and you got a bunch of energy drinks? Or how do you go about a routine if you even have one during this time of the year? Well, I don't think it starts now. That's my point. It started long ago. And you're, <laughs> you're, you're limited. You're limited on, on, on uh, pillow time, that's for sure. But you've spent days and months with your staff, and that includes the coaches, going over your roster. And so you kind of know how it's evolved, and you know the what ifs. It's like preparing for a draft with a few more moving parts. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's hard to, to always have everybody on the same page. You as a GM, and I found this over the years, people underestimate the fact that you're a listener, right? You take, the, you take in what everybody's opinions are, but at the end of the day, you've got to decide what's best. But the opinions sometimes that you have to hear are agenda-based because, you know, they're, they're made from a, a worm's-eye view and not a bird's-eye view. The GM has to have a, a bird's-eye view. So there's a lot of listening, 
And it is helpful, I've found, because I can always go back to the tape myself and kind of decipher what everybody's saying, but also have an opinion through my own eyes. The, the, the GMs who are more cap-friendly, more came up on that side of the business, I think it's harder for them because they can only go on what's being told to them. So who has these conversations with the players? Are they in person? Is it over the phone? Is it a little bit of both? And do you delegate that as well as a GM, or are you calling – you know, 40 guys to say, hey, you know, appreciate your time, but this is the end. I think you owe it to them to do it yourself. And a lot of – I've been around some coaches who want no part of it. I've been around other coaches where he and I were the ones in the room. I frankly like that the best. These guys have given you everything they have their whole lives, really, some of them for year after year. So I think you owe it to them to sit down and have a face-to-face and, and uh, actually learn something from them too. It, in some cases, it, it is an exit interview – other cases, you may see these guys again, but I don't really want a messenger in the middle of our view as a club about that particular player, and it sometimes can be a good give-and-take exchange. Randy, I am not an NFL executive, but I play one on radio, okay? So <laughs> so let me throw to you, Randy Mueller, my kind of what I've always felt about building a roster if I were in that position, and then I want you to tell me um, I have a follow-up to it, Okay. I've always felt like offensive linemen and cornerbacks. My line has always been defensive backs and offensive linemen are like sunglasses and cell phone chargers. You can never have too many of them because you're constantly losing one and or having to replace one that suddenly broke when you least expected it. Is that a fair statement first off? It is to a point. I would even take it down uh, a little closer to, to the autopsy in that I think safeties are a little easier to replace than corners, and I think guards are a little easier to replace than tackles. So just keep that in mind, but I'm following you so far. Okay, so with that, if there was a position that you're looking at your roster and you realize that you need more depth, then what other position can you kind of draw away a roster spot from because it's the most fungible on your roster? Well, it comes down to some help on special teams. I don't think you can ever have enough linebackers, and those guys are the ones that throw their body in harm's way. Um, I think offensive linemen, like you said, are really hard to find, but they also don't help you on special teams. There may be Sundays in the, in the fall where you only dress seven of them, so maybe you can rob a little bit from that part of the roster. Some teams now don't emphasize a fullback, and, and in case – they have sometimes very few tight ends, so you can maybe gain a spot or two from there. If you're talking about keeping 10 or 11 secondary players, I could make a case for keeping six corners, maybe seven, because it is such a spread game now that we need cover guys above and beyond guys that can play the run or play in the box or be a strong safety. So there's there's give and take to the roster without a doubt. It's pliable, and in fact, are in the injuries that you may or may not have to deal with on your roster as well. So we're talking to Randy Mueller at The Athletic, former NFL GM, executive of the year, et cetera, et cetera. He has a lot of titles because he's done a lot of things. But um, Randy, one of the things we talked about, and you can actually read a column on Cut Down Day, his perspective on it at The Athletic right now. But Randy, we talked about Jonathan Taylor, who is the talk of the town, talk of the NFL this week, especially today. And just to expand on what we written and what I wrote and what we talked about, what do you think are his options if he has any right now? I think, it, and, and you and I, you're right. We talked about this. I think it's going to be hard to find a home and a contract. I think the market for him could be a little more robust if he's willing to play for his deal this year and be looked at more like a rental for one year. I just don't think, you're going to be able to put together a, a, a deal for a top compensative package for the Colts and yet pay Jonathan as well. I think, and you and I talked about it, if I was a GM looking for a running back, I probably would have signed Dalvin Cook two weeks ago because I didn't have to give any compensation, and he signed for oh, it was six, seven million a year, something like that. So, And he's a really good player. So I don't know that there's a lot to stand on above and beyond that at this point. That market, it took Dalvin Cook two months to get a job. So I'm not sure how you can find enough uh, information to piece together a deal just in these last few days. Randy, how important is it for the GM and the head coach and the owner to be on the same page and 
how much do words matter in these situations where you're dealing with very personal subjects? I know from the outside looking in, it's like, oh, it's it's money. It's also feelings and emotions and things like that, right? 100%. It's a lot about just the line of communication. And I'm not sure. I think I kind of know how they operate in Indy, that sometimes that would make me nervous as the GM. And I know Chris Ballard's in a tough spot at times. But I would spend a lot of days communicating with the right people in my own building. And at the end of the day, I'd say, what did I do today? I got absolutely nothing done. All I did was communicate with everybody. And sometimes that's the job. People think the GM is can sit in a room and pick players. That's 10% of the job. You've got to manage your whole group and communicate with everybody to keep the whole operation on the rails. So it's a, it's a little different criteria for those jobs, but you have to keep everybody on the same page. Otherwise, it's a nightmare, for, for the, especially for the spokesman. Between the draft, Randy, the war room of the draft, and then I'll say the war room of you know the decisions of final cuts, from a general manager standpoint, which do you think is a stronger suit to have? The strength and the conviction of your gut to be able to use your authority to override on a decision like, say, the head coach – and, and stand up to the owner, or the humility of at times taking a back seat and allowing and trusting your coach to have his input on the players that are best for the system that he envisions? Well, that's a great question, and there's a book or two in there, to be honest with you, Jake. I mean, it, that's been written time and time again. Um, I think the best GMs do a little bit of both. I think you have to acquiesce at times to your coaches, but I also think it's important to have a detailed criteria that you want in your players and your systems so that sometimes coaches get interchanged too. So it, it's hard. I think, again, you have an advantage as a GM if you can evaluate yourself, in my opinion, because you don't have to listen to everybody. I think the fact that you override coaches or you override people in your scouting department is a little overrated because I've never – overridden a coach per se um i i'm if we can't agree we're going to pick a different lane that we can agree on that was always my theory did you ever have and i don't know so pardon my asking this did you ever have coaches that you inherited or was it always a coach that you had selected um i i've worked where coaches were under me i've worked where coaches were even with me and i've worked as the coach's boss the relationship was the same, but yes, I have worked with coaches that were there when I came. Hey, Nick, Nick Saban hired me in Miami, so he was the boss. So all kinds of different dynamics. Was any one more complicated than the other, or is it all kind of you figured out? Um, I think it's definitely more complicated, but I also know we're big boys, right? We have big boy pants, and we need <laughs> to, and we communicate better i think now the older we get and and the ability to to uh listen i think has to be there it, none of us are smarter than all of us so it is it is a difficult job that's why these guys get paid like they do nowadays um but it's one that is a great challenge that is as about as satisfying as any job you could have when you can win but the pressure comes getting to that point i'm wearing tough skins randy i'm not gonna lie to you i have yet to get to the big i haven't graduated to the big boy pants yet <laughs> well, I know, but you play that. You play one on the radio. You- <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. You can't tell how big oh I am on the radio, God. right? <laughs> Randy, please do not stroke that man's ego, please. But I will say this. You talked about, you know, you all get paid a lot of money, right? You're in this profession. And we're not saying John Taylor is not going to make a lot of money this year if he does play for the Colts. But what has been your take on just the evolution of the franchise tag and seeing how it's used now versus when it was first implemented, I believe, maybe 30 years ago, I believe, is the anniversary of this year. Yeah, I remember when it came out, and the reasoning behind why, when it came out was free agency had just come to the league, and it was one of the CBAs that was bargained for, I think you're right, mid-'90s or maybe early-'90s. It was brought into effect to to minimize change of the best players in the league. In other words, you didn't want your team's best players being able to walk out the door. So you had the franchise tag and you had a transition tag. But at the same time, it rewarded those players for being paid the average of the top five or a transition tag average of the top ten. So I think the theory is good. I still think it's there. I just think in the running back case, most coaches and systems now have minimized it to the point where they think they can scheme 
rushing yardage. They can scheme it with X's and O's. They don't necessarily need, unless that back can be a weapon on third down, they don't need to pay one to get what they want production-wise. So it's just evolved. Hey, who knows? A couple years from now, we might be back to adding a fullback and running downhill between the tackles. So I want to mention this real quick. So the year that Randy Mueller won Executive of the Year was 2000. Jake, there were 14 running backs with at least 290 carries that season. Eddie George led them all with 403 carries in a season. Last year, there were only four players with 290 carries, and the only one who made the playoffs was Saquon Barkley. Like, that is – that's I mean, the, the trend itself, you are no longer handing it off to right. a guy 40 times in a game. Yep. You're, you're not, and, you're, and thus, you're not getting the value to just be a runner of the football. You've got to do all the other things. You've got to play on third down. You've got to average seven or eight yards a catch as a running back. And you've got to be a playmaker in the red zone. So there's just the criteria has changed as well. Randy, I assume you've seen a fair amount um, of the reps that each of these three guys got during the preseason. Between Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Anthony Richardson – uh, which one has, to you, shown the most flash, and which one, to you, shows the most work yet to be done? Well, that might cover both of what you're watching in Indianapolis, because you do see <laughs> flash. You see flash, but you see wild inaccuracy as well. So I think I've learned very little from these three quarterbacks since the preseason started. I thought Bryce Young would be the furthest ahead. I think he is. I think C.J. Stroud is probably second, who seems to be more comfortable. But I've said all along that, you know, Anthony Richardson has the biggest upside. He just has the furthest to come. So I get it. I think we're going to have to obviously see a lot more body of work, but I've really seen nothing that surprises me to this point. Would you rather, if you were getting ready to draft a quarterback and you're looking at a guy, would you rather have one that has really good mechanics but not very good intuition and presence in the pocket or one that has really good intuition and presence, but the mechanics are throwing off his accuracy. Which one is easier to adjust for a player over the course of time? Well, I think it's a fatal flaw if you don't have poise and, and can process from the pocket. I don't know how you could play at the NFL level. So that one's a big one for me. Hey, I was with Philip Rivers for 10 years in, in San Diego or L.A. Nobody's looking for guys to throw sidearm like he does. But I've never seen a guy more comfortable in the pocket that can make things happen inside the pocket than he has. So I think the cookie cutter is 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 changing. I do love the fact that some of these guys can move around and get away from pressure, but eventually defensive coaches, and they're the best in the world at what they do, they will keep you in the pocket and you've got to make all the throws from that spot. That's what we're going to see happen with all three of these young guys and who does it the best will determine who's the most successful. So you actually had a piece about this in the athletic ranking your young developing quarterbacks in the NFL for the listeners out there, Anthony Richardson isn't on there because he hasn't played yet, so it's kind of hard to evaluate him and where he's at. But who do you think of that bunch where you said they're kind of you know in that in-between stage, you know, uh, Kenny Pickett, Jordan Love, Justin Fields, who are some of these guys that you think could take a leap to becoming a true franchise player, and wh- what do you think are the keys to doing so? Well, I left the young guys out because I think they're more projects at this point. That was this year's Oh, don't guys. use that word here in Indianapolis, Randy. I got They, they got me some hot water with, uh, with Anthony Richardson, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm just telling you the way I feel after 35 years in the NFL. So. <laughs> that is what it is. But I do like the fact that these guys who I ranked, and there were six of them, you're right about the piece, I think I had Pickett at the top because of his ability to process and make all the throws accurately from the pocket. I had feels a little lower because that's still a little bit of a, uh, that's a learning curve that we haven't seen. Frankly, there's a couple guys that, and although the body work isn't much, um, the kid from the red, uh, from the commanders, uh, North Carolina, Sam Howell, yep. he was impressive in preseason to me in that he could make the throws and felt very comfortable in the pocket. And trust me, I love the athleticism some of these young guys have. But that will wear off in time. They will find a way to not rush you and make you throw from the pocket. So the guys who stood out for me in that group that I wrote for on The Athletic were the guys who could process. But that was the same criteria I would use to select them to start with. So the criteria doesn't change. Randy, before we let you go, I have one other question for you. Randy Mueller is our guest, by the way. You can read his work at The Athletic. You can hear his podcast at The Athletic as well. Um, Because you have worked at the executive level in the National Football League, let me throw you 
a jQuery tinfoil hat, you're going to think I'm crazy scenario, and then you tell me, like, grade me 1 to 10, 10 being certifiable and 1 being, Jake, you're not crazy at all, that actually is a possibility, okay? Okay. When the Live Golf thing happened, and that was announced, and yep. the initial reaction was, you know, you had the Saudi investment money that, that was formulating a league to compete against the PGA, and the thought process was, like, there's no way this thing's going to last. They don't even have a TV deal. And then they end up merging, okay? Mm -hmm. I have wondered if that wasn't the Saudi investment fund group basically doing a test balloon of professional sports. There is no bigger 800-pound gorilla of professional sports than the National Football League. But there are two leagues already in existence where one could lure away either top college talent or existing veteran talent with big-time money to play for one of those teams. Is it possible that eventually we start to see that same investment group dabbling in different sports and that the NFL is actually somewhat conditioned the way football is set up in this country to be vulnerable for that money to go against a competing to go f towards a competing league. Well, I'm not going to say you're nuts. I think it's probably a a, a five or, or or a four in there. It's possible. There's no doubt. It's much harder to stage a takeover of, you know, the, the biggest sport in the U.S. than it is to figure out a way to have a competing golf tour. I can promise you that. But if money's no object, and if you're just printing money, if you had the right people behind it who could actually evaluate talent and give you six or eight guys who you should spend your money on, I guess it would be something worth worth considering. Uh, again, it's complicated. That's probably way above my pay grade, Jake, but I don't think it's crazy. I well, think I just – I, I keep going it. back, Randy, in my mind to – you know, I remember when it was kind of laughable, like Herschel Walker, what are the New Jersey generals? Doug Flutie, who, who is, you know, Reggie yeah. White's going to the Memphis showboats. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Like we might have to start taking this seriously here. Obviously we know what happened with that. And we're talking 40 years ago, but there is precedent. It would seem to, if you can get a couple of big splashes, you can start to raise an eyebrow. That, that would be all well, I would say. Yeah. I would agree. I think it's, it, it is always a possible, and, and you'd have to have a, a, a printing machine for money, but it sounds like they do. So yeah. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't disregard it totally, that's for sure. Last one from me, Randy. Is Jonathan Taylor a cult after 4 p.m. Eastern time? I think so, James. I, just, I don't think the dots can all be connected in this time frame. And, again, I thought all along that allowing him to seek a trade would be part of the process that allows him, the life preserver, to come back the Colts so that's probably what I would say at this point but who knows I'm I'm 2,000 miles away <laughs> well look I appreciate you coming on and answering all my texts and calls I've been harassing you this last few weeks <laughs> but uh appreciate you my man no worries guys thanks a lot speaking of the athletic we go back to the athletic writer for the athletic Mike Jones joins us on the program and Mike I appreciate the time I'll get right to it I I thought you had a really interesting an insightful column about Jonathan Taylor essentially saying that there is the possibility, not the certainty, but the possibility that Jonathan Taylor's situation could be a watershed one for running backs in the National Football League. If you could illuminate for our listeners exactly what it was that you wrote in The Athletic. Yeah, well, what he's trying to do as far as, um, you know, get a new contract extension, and since the, the Colts are not willing to do that, to get it, um, elsewhere to you know force his way out of there via trade and then sign a new deal with someone else is something that he is doing here as he's in the final year of his his uh, rookie contract um, where you know we saw guys last year like uh, Josh Jacobs Saquon Barkley uh, both of those guys um, uh, you know Tony Pollard guys that wound up having to play will you know receive the franchise tag designation um, this off season rather than a contract extension and you know asking around talking to guys um in the league talent evaluators and also you know player agents just about what they thought about um how this was handled uh they said you know what what jonathan jones what jonathan um taylor's doing right now um it might be the blueprint that running backs can follow you know 
by not waiting until the end of his contract and once his you know team can franchise him um, in the offseason and control his leverage, maybe the time to do it is as you're entering that final season. And then, look, talks break down, and then now uh, he's been re- given permission to pursue a trade, and we'll see what happens this afternoon. That's supposedly uh, the deadline. Although if it doesn't happen today, it doesn't mean that it you know is completely dead. Uh, but this is something that running backs might um, start doing, so that way they still control some of the leverage, rather than having to settle, you know, having to be tagged where they really have no leverage at all. So, Mike, if this doesn't work out and JT sort of falls flat on his face and he still succumbs to a lot of powers in the CBA, in particular that that help teams out in these situations. Do you think that kind of slams the door shut on the running back debate or market and, and, and what we're seeing now becomes what we just see in the future? Um, it, it could be. Um, and, and, yeah, we'll, we'll see how he handles this thing here. Um, you know, the, the possibility um, has been raised, okay, well, look, just because he doesn't get traded doesn't mean, um, you know, he could possibly hold in. Um, and refuse to play. Um, that's not saying that that can't. That's his representative saying, "Hey, this is our game plan." But other, you know, representatives, other people in the league are saying, "Look, if he doesn't get traded, what options does he have?" And you know, possibly, you know, you can't really hold out. Because I was going to say it's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of money that you get fined every single day. Uh, but if you come in and you're you're there and you say, "Look, I'm not going to play. I'm protecting myself." Um, and then, you know, you wait until the minimum that you have to play to get your accrued season and then hit free agency and take it from there. Now, you hope it doesn't come down to that, um, but uh, those are just some of the options that he might have. When you, when you look at the way this has all gone down, Mike, is there any chance let – me, let me throw at you a, a possible situation. Is there any chance that the Colts basically said, you know what – Jim Mersey has said that we're not going to trade Jonathan Taylor. Not now, not October, never. And I, I realize that that probably was before some things might have changed a little bit. But any chance that they said to Jonathan Taylor, hey, we're giving you the green light. You and your agent go out there, shop around, and that they didn't do that because they have intention actually of dealing him, but rather to cement and create leverage for themselves by proving to his agent and to Jonathan Taylor that his market value is not near as high as what a $16 million per year player would, would expect. No, that's definitely a possibility, and that's something that you know when I was you know talking to people about, hey, what do you think is you know going on here? Are they really going to trade him? When this first came out that they had given him permission to seek a trade, there were people who wondered, okay, well they're not really going to trade him, but they do want him to be able to see, hey, look, you're not what you think you're worth. What we offered you actually was fair, um, and then him wind up having to come back uh, to the negotiation tables, accept what they were offering him, um, and then play here. That is always a possibility. But it does sound like that, you know, there are definitely teams who are interested out there, um, and we'll see. But that asking price of the Colts um, is kind of high, um, you know, wanting a first-round draft pick. Now, will they wind up relenting? Say that the, the Dolphins uh, or say, hey, look, we're not going to give you first, but we'll give you a second-round pick and a player. Um, if the Colts are, are happy with that, conversa- that compensation and figure, you know what, Rather than deal with a disgruntled player, let's get something that we can use to build for the future. Let's take this offer here and then go from there. But, you know, it, it's going to be intriguing um, to see how it plays out there because, you know, that's a possibility that they did, you know, basically just say, hey, we'll let him so that way he can see he's not worth it and you go ahead and take our deal. Or, you know, maybe somebody, you know, winds up swooping in here and gives them a sweet enough offer that they decide they're good and ready to cut, the, cut their losses. Because, Mike, my, my thing, you know, to piggyback off that, I get that the Colts, if the Colts were saying w- w- he's out there, but only if you're going to give us a first rounder. And I don't know if that's reality, right? I mean, the reality is maybe if somebody offers them a, a second and a fourth or something, they, they pull the trigger on it. But by saying it that way, by making it publicly known, Jonathan Taylor, we are we we are looking for a first round pick for Jonathan Taylor. By doing that, then if there are no takers, then isn't it easy for them to then go back and say, "Look, the rest of the league doesn't consider you a first rounder." Period. So we now have the line in the sand of what your value is. It seems to be a really 
harsh way of doing things. But Mike, welcome to the NFL, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, it is a business, um, and you know, it, the the emotions and everything like that, and feeling great about players, it only extends but so long, so deep, and then all of a sudden, these owners, these team presidents, it's like, look, hey, this is your value, take it, uh, or you know, or, or deal with it, and then you know, we'll see what happens in the off season, whether they franchise tag him or, or you know he goes elsewhere or they wind up working something out, but um, they would definitely have more leverage. If somebody says, if everybody says, no, we're not giving you a first round pick. And then they're like, okay, you're stuck here. Now, what are you going to do? You know, you're under contract, uh, get out there on the field. Yeah. It's going to be really, really awkward if he remains here later today. And it becomes even more awkward in my opinion, if he comes off the pup list, the physically unable to perform list. And then it's like, you have to play and you have to talk to us in the media, which I'm looking forward to. But, um, Mike, you've been around this a long time. In your piece, you talked about the physical, and I think that was a point where a lot of um, our audience here in Indianapolis was like, wait a second, the physical, how does that factor into a trade? And, and so you've been around it a long time. How does it factor into this situation in particular, and can one team clear a guy and another team say, oh, he didn't pass his physical? Like, How does that all work? Uh, you know, I haven't seen a situation where somebody, uh, you know, passes a physical with one team and not another one, um, you know, and also he has to be able to prove what he can do because th- these teams don't want to take on damaged goods. Um, they don't want to because obviously they're not just trading for him. They also would have, be giving him a contract as well. So they don't want to invest money in somebody that can't pass a physical. They want to make sure okay, that they protect themselves because say a dude, you know, they, they pass him one through and then, you know, the injury winds up being more serious and he can't get out in the field, then they're on the hook for the money. So, um, you know, by talking to people, they figure, hey, look, he's healthy enough to pass the physical. Um, you know, there'd be no way that they'd be pursuing a deal right now or in asking around and trying to solicit a trade if his agent and him weren't confident that he could be able to go out there and pass a physical and then, uh, you know, sign a contract. Mike, again, Mike Jones is our guest. He is from The Athletic. We're talking about Jonathan Taylor, amongst other things that we may bring up here. But um, the, the Taylor situation, Mike, one other question for you regarding that. This Miami is the team that has been most reported out there. Who knows how many others, you know, up six teams might have called. But now there's this late push from this mystery team, right? There's a there's a second mystery team that is now suddenly expressing interest. And Miami better, you know, bring to the table something pretty serious now because this other team could outbid them at the last minute. What are the chances that's actually a creation by the Colts to try to push Miami into a trade? I mean, I think it's a very good possibility that it is something like that. I had heard that uh, the Colts, the Bears, the Broncos were three leading teams. But as far as the mystery team, haven't figured out. I just had talked to somebody about an hour ago, and they said it's basically Miami or bust. Um, and they felt like uh, that that was, you know, kind of a ploy on the Colts' part to try to, you know, uh, put a little more pressure on the Dolphins that there is some, you know, body else that's kind of circling right there. Um, but, again, if it was, you know, a team that's out there that's been kind of, you know, laying below the radar, it's got to be a team that's really close contending, um, that, that has, you know, assets, but also feels like, hey, he is that missing piece that he put over there. But I do think – uh, from everything I've been able to heard, that the Dawsons would be the team that's got the best shot um, and the most desperate for his services. Part of me just, because the way I am and I'm wired, is like, if you do leave JT, go to a team where you play against the Colts later this season. Because right. <laughs> I, I just want to see how that whole thing will go down. But getting back to the point, and I guess the the broader picture in this, do you think that he has more leverage maybe now than he would have a year later from now? Because on one hand, it seems like it's a year early, but on the other, I can kind of see why he maybe doesn't want to wait for that franchise tag where, you know, guys are fighting it every year now. Oh, yeah. If he if they tag him, he doesn't have very much leverage at all. Because look what happened with Saquon Barkley, um, with Josh Jacobs. I mean, Josh Jacobs led the NFL in rushing and still couldn't get much more um, than the franchise tag. He wound up, you know, dragging it out to the last minute and finally getting a little bit more, but it was still a one-year deal. Saquon Barkley 
had um, another 1,300-yard season and, you know, couldn't get a multi-year deal, even though the Giants definitely know that his production was a big reason why Daniel Jones um, looked like a competent quarterback last year because the pressure was off them with the balanced um, attack. Um, and so you don't want to go into that offseason where they tag you because then you have no say of where you're going to go. The team, again, can demand you know a first-round pick. Uh, and so it's you want to, like he's doing right now, they wanted to go out there, put the pressure on the Colts, hey, back them into a corner, say, look, we're not going to play here. You have to either re-sign us to an extension or trade us elsewhere, and then he has his agent be able to go out there and find teams that fit you know, what he is looking for in an organization and teams that would be willing to pay him. If you wait till the offseason, there's no leverage at all on his part because, boom, all they have to do is slap that tag on him and they control it and can basically force him, just like we saw with Jacobs and uh, Barkley, uh, to basically take you know a deal that's around the franchise tag or just a little bit more and not much more than that. Now, Mike, I'm not one for creating leverage if I were a player, but if if I was potentially going to be traded to the Dolphins, I would require that I'm only going to accept the trade and report if they go back to their old helmets instead of that newer Dolphin-looking <laughs> thing, right? Do, do you agree with me on that? I mean, I think it depends on how many, you know, what that what that price tag of that check might look like, you know. <laughs> You'll adjust. I like to wear the old Dolphins, you know, but say it's, you know, a pretty, pretty check, maybe you kind of look the other way. Oh, the little fella yeah. jumping through the hoop wearing a helmet? I mean, say, it's pretty awesome. Look, no income tax in Florida, so. That's true. That is true. <laughs> Man, exactly. it, goes, it goes longer. It goes farther. Well, Mike, I'll ask you this, too, and, and kind of pivot away from JT. When you look at – the way the um, quarterback market is sort of going, could we see a point where to sort of offset some of the running back discrepancies where we have a player who is tied to a percentage of the cap rather than the money? Or do you think that the owners would be like, no way, we would never ever (laughs) uh, set it up like that? You know, I I don't think that we'll see that. But, you know, again, you just never know. I mean, who would have thought that we'd seen these quarterbacks getting the kind of money that they're, they're getting right now or, um, you know, even, you know, some of these pass rushers. So I don't know that you could totally rule it out, uh, but it just seems like that is a lot for an owner to, to wind up giving up um, in return to a player because we know uh, control is something that they still want to make sure that they uh, maintain. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I covered the NBA for a year. I feel like the NFL mops the floor with the NFLPA and yep. the things yep. that the owners get. But along those lines, do you think that there is a player out there not name Patrick Mahomes because he's already signed. Could Joe Burrow, for example, get a fully guaranteed deal? Um, I think that these owners are pretty much hell bent on not giving up. Um, you know, when Deshaun Watson got his deal, they basically <laughs> got together and was like, "Yo, we're not doing this again." Okay, um, you know. Now I think that the the amount will continue to go up. We saw it go up with Jalen Hurts, then Lamar Jackson, um, uh, Justin Herbert. I think Joe Burrow will will get closer to that fully guaranteed. I don't think that he will get that, um, you know, but if anybody can, he's the closest one to it. Him, you know, you said not name Mahomes. I think that Burrow's probably got the best shot. The column, if Jonathan Taylor gets his trade, other running backs will have blueprint to follow. The author is Mike Jones. The place you can find it is The Athletic. And Mike has been kind enough to join us today. Mike, appreciate it. And we'll let you get back to work in what's going to be a flurry of activity, I assume, here in the next couple hours. All right. Thanks, I guess. Have a good one. All right. Again, Mike Jones from The Athletic. Mike Chappell and I have had conversations before about the Beatles. I don't know why, but Chappell strikes me as a guy that probably has played some Bob Seger in his car and or maybe even seen him in concert. What do you think, James? If we had to go... Yes or no, Mike Chappell has seen Bob Seger in concert in his life. I'm going to go yes. Okay, we'll find out exactly that and more from Mike Chappell of CBS4 and WXAN who joins us now on the program. Uh, Chap, yes or no, you've seen Bob Seger in concert and or like his music? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> yeah, I saw him when he, when he came here. He was in town. God, what's it been? Ten years ago was, I don't know, it, 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 Cambridge, I think it was. He was, uh, yeah, and one of the best 
CDs I've got is Nine Tonight, the live album. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a Seeger guy. I, I've got like five guys that I could have on my my memorial for my, my funeral, and he and the Beatles would share a lot of the time. Um, did you say and share or they share S H A R E? S H A R E. Okay. I didn't oh know if like Sonny and Cher's in there. <laughs> I got yeah. you, babe. No, I don't think so. Now, he looks like a share guy. What about Bruce Springsteen, chap? I, I I was never a big Springsteen guy, but I saw him two weeks ago in Wrigley Field, and it blew me away. I saw him here back in the day. Gosh, was at Market Square. Uh, awesome. He he just he just freaking wears you out with his energy. Uh, it's unbelievable. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a super I'm not a super fan, but yeah, for, for that. And then and then one another one. I saw Tina Turner at. Uh, Deer Creek at the time. First concert I saw was Tina Turner. Tina Turner opened for Lionel Richie. I was uh, 11 years old. And, like, Tina Turner actually is another one. Total energy, right? Like, just not – I mean, obviously the late Tina Turner. But, um, chap, two hours from right now, 4.01 p.m. Eastern time. Jonathan Taylor is or is not an Indianapolis Colt? I go back and forth. I'm saying not. I just just think they've reached – the, the point of no return with your relationship. And I, I realize people say things and then they kiss and make up. This just seems different. It just seems really, really personal where maybe he feels personally betrayed when the team decided not to extend him. But I, no, I just have a hard time, and we've talked to the press room, I have a hard time seeing him back here with all that's been said and done and you just like you pick up and move on. It it seems like they've reached a point of no return, but I might be wrong. That that's just kind of from what I've talked to people about and, and heard, and the gut feeling that he's he's gone. It just makes it, it's hard to see him back here. Chap, I just want the opportunity to talk to him whenever he talks, whether it's here or somewhere else. So Agreed. if he does get traded, I will be asking the athletic, send me to wherever because I want to be at that <laughs> press conference because, you know, everyone's going to ask, oh, what does it mean to be here? No, I want to ask all the, you know, petty, right. you know, grimy, how did this really go down type of questions. But I will say this. And you, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Mike. And you won't get those answers. No. But, but I understand no. what you're saying. But. I was going to say the flip side to that is that if he does remain here and he comes off the physically unable to perform list and he has to talk to us, then you still might not get any answers, but you might get something a little more real if he has to have a mic in front of him and kind of stand there and be the model player. So all of that in mind, chap, how much do you think it matters to keep him around with Anthony Richardson? I know I kind of go back and forth with it. I understand the scheme aspect of it. You can kind of scheme up yards, but we know the rest of that running back room right now. How do they survive without JT? Well, they they, they will. I mean, I, you know, remember Ursay what he said, which was correct but inappropriate. With if I die and he's gone, the league goes on. It's true, but you didn't need to add that. But yeah, it, it's I understand where people. Say so you can just kind of put a running back back there, and the quarterback makes it work. But it's you can't tell me that the defenses are game planning the same way with Richardson and Taylor as opposed to Richardson and Zach Moss or Deion Jackson. It, they just won't. Uh, and again, I I've been around long enough to I remember what Marshall Falk's impact was with Peyton Manning as a rookie. Peyton called him the security blanket, and, and you know. Taylor's really more more of explosive back than, than Falk was. He's not near the complete player. But so yeah, I, I think it would have a major impact. But and again, I, I you just you just kind of wonder how where this thing changed to where a lot of us anticipated that Taylor would get his extension, and the team even kind of hinted at it and talked about it. And then there was a change. In the offseason, there was a change, whatever it was, April or May. And to me, that's when that's when Taylor really felt betrayed by the team and he changed agents. And, you know, you've written this, the quotes we got from him in April. Yeah. I put pen to paper, four years obligation and all this stuff. And, boy, we're, 
we're light years away from those quotes. I mean, back in January, Chris Ballard said, he's asked point blank, I think it was by Kevin Bowen here on 107.5 The Fan, and he said, is it, you know, smart to pay a running back top dollar? And he said, yeah, you know, if you're a special player, yeah. So everyone has sort of switched shots. Yes, yes. And I understand that's a surgery and all that, and but from everything that, that we've heard, it was sort of just a routine, you know, as surgeries go, a routine thing. And he was supposed to be back in two to four weeks. And he, he even said, you know, I'm 100% ready to rock. This was like four days after surgery. So I, I just really think it, it went off the rails when the Colts had a change of heart and they decided not to extend him. And then we've we've just been there how this has just kind of deteriorated to where we are. you know. And, and I said this before, I, I thought the number one slap was when he went away from the team for a week to rehab. I, I, I can't think of a time that the team has allowed a player to, yeah, go ahead, go with your guys, because our guys suck. Well, that's you just, it, it's, it's just, it's just never hardly ever done. That's why I just see it. it's hard. It's hard for me to see him coming back here. And by the way, he hasn't passed his physical yet. So it, it's it's just one of the more complicated situations. And I was just thinking, I'm just writing the story just to be prepared for a trade. This will be like the fourth running back, you know, premier running back that they that they've made a move with. Remember with Eric Dickerson and Marshall Falk and Edron, and and now and now. Taylor, so uh, it, it just shows you that at some point the team has to decide what's what's it worth to, to keep a running back around. All those guys were around longer. Dickerson was different because he was an odd bird. But this is three years. They got the kids 24. I really thought that extend name. I'm sort of surprised they haven't. And it's just shocking that they've got to this point. Chap, is there a chance? Mike Chappell's our guest here on Querying Company. Is there the chance that in the end that Jonathan Taylor, if he does not play this year, and I know he's a wonderful player, is there a chance that it actually will be beneficial to the development of Anthony Richardson? Because the odds are that Anthony Richardson, once he is in his prime, is going to have a running back behind him that is not one of the top three to five running backs in the league. So the the earlier that he can learn how to play with defenses that are not focusing on that, the better off he's going to be in the long run. Yeah, you're in that car by yourself. I can't I I can't go there because I, I don't want to I don't want to further stress my rookie quarterback who, by the way, has played thirteen games. I want I want him to yeah, I don't think that's by design. I'm not saying they're designing it that way, but I'm saying is there the chance that like five years from now we'll look back on it and go, you know what, that was even more baptism by fire for him and and that helped his development? I, I, I don't think so. I, again, I, because I think this is just going to hurt his rookie year. So so anything that, that impedes his rookie progress, I, I can't say that's helping him in five years. You know, I go back to, again. Manning only had fault for one year. Of course, then they transitioned to a, from one Hall of Famer to another Hall of Famer. I still don't think that if you've got a a quarterback, a Jalen Hurts type guy, I still don't think you just want to throw a bunch of rummies out there with him. You still want to have you know viable options. And I look at this. If we assume that Taylor's gone, I look at this running back room. If, if I keep track of all the, the cuts, they've got three guys left. Zach Moss with a broken arm and Deion Jackson and Evan Hall, the rookie. So they'll, you know, they can very well add another guy. Yeah, I just don't, I understand that let's, let's get him used to not having a, a top-end player. Let's do that next year. Let, let, let's let him kind of get his feet on the ground and learn things with, with a really quality player next to him before we Make it make that happen next year. I, I I see what you're saying, but in this instance, I'd say let's let's make it as easy for the quarterback as we can. Mike, have you heard of at this point? I mean, I know, and I'll be honest. 
you know, Mike Strawn, Amari Rogers, I, neither of those two really surprised me, although I thought maybe there was a chance it was going to be one or the other, not necessarily both. I thought Rogers might have had a chance because he could do some special teams. But we know now Mike Strawn, Amari Rogers, uh, Jake Funk. Those are three guys that I've definitively heard. But then again, we've been on the air for the last couple of hours. Uh, who else have you heard or are anticipating or going to hear their names today called in as bring your playbook, you're no longer a part of the team? Well, Joel Erickson at Star is doing a good job, but uh, what was it? Um, Jake Funk, DJ Montgomery, Jason Huntley, uh, Ian Anderson. There, there's a handful of guys. I think I've got, I've got them down to maybe six receivers. I, I can't. I don't remember whether Vincent Smith has been released yet. Cut yet. But I, I, I won't be sh- shocked if they find a receiver on the waiver wire for that fifth guy. Uh, they certainly need to find an offensive line, interior offensive lineman or two on the waiver wire. This is this is not a strong roster. It just isn't. This is the bottom of this. This is one. I, I remember John Oger used to be Colts.com, and and he said that he was talking to a scout once on a bad team and. They're cutting, cutting, and and, he, and the guy, the scout, it's so hard to stop at fifty three. You know, you you want you before you know it, you're down to forty eight players. No, no, we have to have fifty three. Dang. So, yeah, but I do think they had three or four players by uh, waivers because they need help in two or three spots. Chap, how concerned should we be? I know we talked about the running back room, and that's obviously the biggest concern today, and will remain that way until we get a resolution in the JT saga. But how concerned should we be about the wide receiver room and maybe the lack of pop they showed throughout the preseason? Yeah, but but that's nothing they can really address now. I mean, you're not going to bring in, you know, Devontae Adams or somebody. But no, I, I, I agree. And I, we were talking in camp, and I said if I were a fantasy guy, I'd be all over Alec Pierce because I would think this would be a really good situation for him because the quarterback likes to go deep and and they're going to take shots. And he just didn't deliver in, in games. What did he have? Was it five or six targets and no catches? And you know, it was a, it was sort of a tough catch in Buffalo, but doggone, you, you got to make that play because that's that's the best pass Richardson threw all camp. That was a preseason. bread basket. I could not hand uh, it off to you better than that dime. But and you got and you got to make them because you know, let's say you take five or six shots in a game, you, you got to hit three or four of them, and, and they just didn't, other than, you know, they had a couple of grands, and yeah, I'm, I'm concerned with that, because that, that was a big problem last year, although it was different, I mean, they just didn't have time, or didn't have the arm talent to push the ball down the field, but God, they averaged like 9.9 yards a, a catch, that's ridiculous, you can't play in today's NFL with that, it's that's concern, but talent-wise, there's nothing you can do at this point, you just have to hope that Pittman gets a little bit more vertical with him, and, and Pierce starts making catches. Mike, in and your Josh down and Josh Downs, in your time covering the Colts, which is the entire time they've been here from Baltimore, what was the most shocking roster cut on cut day that you can recall? There, there's, I have one, and I don't remember if it was like on the actual final day, but one that was like, whoa, because there's always one or two guys, right? Yeah, again, I'll date myself. I think it was back in 84 or 85, and, and I get the years mixed up. But Art Schleister started against Pittsburgh, and, and he was like, what was he, a top five pick and was supposed to be the guy, and they got they got bounced 41 to three or whatever. And and, and Rod Dowher, I think he was Dowher, said he's going to be our quarterback unless there's a disaster, and then he went there and got rolled. And we're sitting in the media room, and he said, yeah, we've signed Georgia Chica, who's a defensive tackle, and we've released Art Schleister. We thought, what? What? So the, 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 that's probably one that jumps out at me uh, just because it was their starting quarterback and all that stuff. But you may have one better than I have. Well, do you remember – and I don't remember when it was. As a matter of fact, Chap, this guy might not have played a game for the Colts. And it was a, I think it was a substance abuse violation. But do you remember when Sean King, the defensive lineman, yeah. was a big signing? He played, he played here. He, he he played a couple of years here. Did, yeah. Okay, he was the one. Remember, he was a big signing, and then yeah, I think it was Pullian's first or second year, and all of a sudden, like the word got out that he was going to be suspended and was being cut. And yep, I mean, it was out of nowhere, right? 
he, he I'd have to go back. I thought he played a year or whatever here, and he was one of those guys that was, was okay as long as he had the structure of the team around him, routine and all this. And he, he went astray during free time the off season. Yeah, he was and he was a good player. That, that's when you hate to see, see a guy fall to the side like that because he's a pretty good player. He he got tied up, I think, with with Tito Wooten when they went on a uh, road trip to the Giants or or the Jets, and they went to Atlantic City and all this stuff. It was really really crazy when it, when it, when, T, when players really did stupid things. But uh, normally normally cut day is not newsday because players kind of show who needs to be here and who doesn't need to be here. And, uh, you know, Strawn is, is sort of a name, but boy, we've been waiting for him for three years. What was a Reggie called him? Megastron. Yeah. He, he's Which, like the, he's like Roy Hall part deux, right? I couldn't believe yeah. that Reggie actually yeah. called him Megastron though. That was yeah, completely. He that. But, but he looks like it. He looks the part. Yeah. Well, but he just, he, he made great catches in practice, and he never really made the consistent plays that you got to make. They going to keep five tight ends, Mike? Yeah, I, I had him keeping five, and Jelani Wood's situation might make sure you do that because his hamstring. I mean, he he missed so much time. Maybe you keep him active for fifty three, and if it's that bad, then you put him on pup after you cut to fifty three. So that might that might force them to keep five. Although normally I can't remember the last time a team kept five tight ends, but Woods' situation might might make them do that. And they, and they don't want to, they don't want to lose Will Mallory. And if you cut him, wave him, somebody probably picks him up uh, as a young project. So yeah, prob- probably five. It seems to me that tight end is the one position. I mentioned this earlier. Mike, that tight end feels like the one position for the Colts that there is the least room from one to five in terms of, in other words, it's not there's not a huge gap one to five at that position in what they have. Each guy might bring something a little different, but in terms of their overall value, they've got five guys that I think are interchangeably pretty valuable to them. Yeah, and then the issue is with Mo, he's their best blocker, and if you get rid of him, then I guess it's Drew Ogletree being your blocker, and and that that's a lot to put on him. So and, and Mo's been banged up. I can't remember if it was a foot or a hamstring, Ankle. maybe a foot. Yeah. So th- th- that's what it, it's really an interesting group. But boy, that you know, Drew Ogletree missed a lot of time with with a shoulder. I think it was. So it's got to make evaluating that room difficult. Uh, but they've got some interest. You know, Granton had a great, I thought, a great preseason, a great camp. Uh, but you need that blocking tight end. Man, it's funny, the further you get away from Jack Doyle, the more you miss him. Boy, he was good. He was he was so good. Uh, and you almost take him for granted unless you really knew what he did. I always said that he'll be one of the top. He and Gary Brackett are two of the, the guys that, that just maximized what they did here. You know, Jack Doyle gets waived by Tennessee. He gets two free agent contracts here, made about, I don't know, $35, $40 million as just being a good, reliable player. So play, guys that get cut today, you just need to keep, you know, the Jack Doyle's in your mind because there is life after, there is life after cut day. And, you know, the thing about Doyle is – it seems to me, Chap, we look at tight ends and you think of, you know, Tony Gonzalez or, you know, I, I don't know, you, tight ends that are receivers basically, right? And we forget the all-encompassing responsibilities of the position. And that takes me back to – because Jack Doyle was such a good blocker and he was such right. a good safety net, but, but in particular his blocking ability and his sacrifice ability. And I think that when it comes to Jonathan Taylor – He's a wonderful player. Do not get me wrong. But Todd Meyer, who we work with here, has made this point. I think it's a really good one. You know, Miami's trying to keep Tua healthy. Jonathan Taylor is not – if you look at Edron James, and I'm not saying Falk didn't do this, but I think Peyton Manning would tell you that the most valuable part of Edron James, aside from being 
one hell of a running back, was he could pick up blitzes. He would throw his body yeah. in the way. He would block and protect his quarterback. And I don't know that – I'm not saying Jonathan Taylor doesn't want to do that, but it's not his style of play in a Miami for Tua or even here for a bigger-bodied Anthony Richardson who's theoretically durable. But I just think that, that we lose sight sometimes of the all-encompassing nature of positions beyond just the statistical part of it. I can think of two or three times last year on Thursday, I think it was when we talked to Taylor and James ask JT about, well, what happened on that blitz pickup kind of where you did nothing, where you whiffed on a guy and JT gave up. Oh, I need to look at the films. There was at least two, maybe three weeks when, when I remember James asked that and got stoned pretty well. So, yes. but that, that's not his, that's not his, his forte, but boy, you need to have, a guy that can – Falk was really good. Falk was – he wasn't as good as Edron, but he was pretty good. But you, you need to have the running back who, who's not a great blocker, but a willing blocker and, you know, can occasionally do it. You can't have guys whiffing on blitz pickups because it gets your quarterback pounded. And, you know, maybe Richardson can avoid those like Ryan couldn't. But, yeah, that that's never has been and probably never will be one of Jonathan Taylor's strengths. Chap, when you look at this team and, and kind of using Jonathan Taylor in a different way, they haven't extended anyone besides just him. They haven't given money to Pittman. They haven't given money to Grover Stewart. They haven't given money to Kenny Moore, who's in the contract year, Julian Blackman, any of these guys. So from an organizational standpoint, it does, at least in my mind, make sense to say, hey, we got a rookie quarterback in here. We don't want to do anything with our books, our cap space, until we figure out what's going on with that. Do you think that's a fair organizational approach to have and to justify or at least tell JT, hey, we're not paying anybody. It's not just you. Oh, I think it's very valid. You're right. And one thing that when we talked to Ballard when camp opened, and it was specifically about JT because he said, well, you know, injury and we won four games. But then he also said, these coaches haven't got their eyes on these guys yet. So I, I think it's very valid that let, let's let this staff, I realize Gus Bradley's back, but let's let this staff really see what they've gotten. You know, maybe Shane Steichen doesn't, doesn't really like this guy or that guy. And, and that's reflected in those things. I don't know. We're never going to know that. But I think that's very valid. The problem is you've got, you, in JT's mind, well, gosh, you, you've extended all these guys. And I and I've arguably done more than they have. I mean, he he had that that great season two years ago, and he was pretty good as a rookie. Pretty good as a rookie. Last year was different for a lot of reasons, but I, I think that's very valid that they're saying let's let's just let this thing play out, and then after the season, we're going to sort of see where we're at. Who do we think is semi long term? Which outside of the quarterback, long term is what four years? Yeah. Uh, or, or, or so. So yeah, that, I think it's a very valid point. But it, it, as valid as it is, JT doesn't want to hear that. I, I think he, again, I think he heard for so long, and we all wrote for so long that this is when he gets his, because yeah. this is when they've always done that. But I think you're right. They're, they're saying, let's pause until we see what we've got moving forward. In hindsight, it's 2020. They paid all that money to Shaq Leonard, and it didn't really work out well so far. They paid yeah. Sonny money to Quentin Nelson last year. He went out and didn't have a great season. And so, and they're also two non premier positions in the NFL. Yep. And so, from JT's perspective, it's like, hey, they got their money where it's mine. But from the Colts' right. perspective, they might be like, well, we made this mistake twice already. Let's not do it a third time with a running back, which is, you know, one of the most replaceable positions in the sport. So I find it interesting. I do think that neither side is wrong. But again, I mean, CBA, chap, the CBA, I don't know who signed this thing. I don't know why they agreed to a franchise tag to begin with way back in the day. But 30 years ago, I don't think they anticipated what it would be now. But my goodness, if JT could go back in time and it was like space – exploration and things like that and wants yep. to go to the moon but if he can go back in time I'm sure he would like want to you know put hands on anybody who had the franchise tag well, <laughs> implemented the, the, the players agreed to it they I mean, did they, and they, they got, did they got something and players agreed to it and whatever their whatever their prize was whether it was benefits or whatever they agreed to it and, and the, 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 I think the issue is with the franchise tag 
owners were always going to stick with that. That that makes sure that you don't lose a Mahomes or Josh Allen or somebody. They're, they're going to be your guy. And it was never really envisioned, I don't think, that it would be a running back. But the franchise tag only impacts, what, I don't know, 12 players a year, maybe. So the rest of the league, all these other players say, I don't care about the franchise tag. I want to make sure I get this. And they allowed the franchise thing to live. So it's, it's, that's not going anywhere. It's, it's, that's not going to go anywhere because the team is not going to risk losing its best player because he wants to go to New York or L.A. or whatever. They're always going to keep that franchise tag. It just depends on what they have to give up. So players go to war over that, and I still don't see players going over war to war over something that's going to impact so few players. Jeff, the Dolphins in the last hour or so uh, restructured the contract of one of their receivers, Cedric Wilson. Gives them a little bit of cap flexibility. Do we read into that? Well, of course we do because <laughs> because that's what we do. Uh, yeah, and one thing that people have to keep in mind is I, I, I didn't see what the Dolphins were cap space and all that, but you you can sign somebody into the cap. You make, you make it work. I know somebody said, well, they're $24 million over the cap next year. So what? They'll find a way. You find a way. You know, Sean Payton in New Orleans, they always were over the cap. And they always made it work. If you want to get a great player, you will make it work. You'll push money forward, whatever. But whenever whenever something is like that is done, of course you read into it. Well, they're trying to, you know, pave way for, for Jonathan Taylor's new extension. So, but that's that's what we do, and, and that's one thing that I, I've said that's that's unfortunate is we've not talked to JT since uh, what June. has it been June, and w- without his voice, we don't really know what he's thinking. I mean, we we, we sort of infer and all that stuff, but failing him talking, you know, we only get like one side, and that's the Colts side, and that's unfortunate. Mike Chappell again, CBS4 and, of course, uh, Fox 59 joining us here on the program. Chap, uh, have fun the next 90 minutes, right? You can you can <laughs> breathe easy here and throw on some Bob Seger in uh, like 94 minutes from now. I'll, I'll, I'll toss my CD in. I will do that. You guys do well. 